Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Nuclear weapons become the centerpiece of sort of military conflict between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. They also, in my opinion, explain why the Cold War never became a hot war. And they also, in my opinion, explain why the Soviet Union decided to quit peacefully, which is unprecedented in the history of great power relations. Hi, welcome to Patented History of Inventions, a podcast by History Hit. I'm your host, Dallas Campbell, and today I've got an interview for you that we actually recorded a few weeks ago before the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and it's on the invention of the atom bomb. When I sat down with the historian Campbell Craig, it seemed that nuclear war was a topic very much for the history books, a threat for people in another time. But with talk of deterrence and stockpiles and missile ranges once again in the news, this is obviously no longer the case. So I hope this interview gives valuable historical context for anyone looking to understand how we got to where we are today. Let's get started. Thanks for joining me on the show today. Listen, you're American. You will have never seen The Ascent of Man, will you? Have no. Have you seen The Ascent of Man? No, I haven't. Okay, so The Ascent of Man. Oh, Jacob The Ascent Br- of Man, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah Jacob yeah, Bronowski. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's one of the greatest science series of all time, but there's a particular episode in it. I think it's episode 11 called Knowledge or Certainty. And it's really about the human quest for absolute knowledge and how terrible it is. And this is why we have things like Nazis and everything else. And anyway, it's really much Bronowski's thoughts about, particularly about Leo Szilard. They were really great friends. And it's a, I've just been looking at the chapter again. And I was just thinking, actually, my first question, when we think about the development of atomic weapons, there is this great cast of characters from Rutherford, obviously, to Max Born, to Leo Szilard, to Fermi. Oppenheimer. Oppenheimer, Teller, all these people. Where's a useful place to start? Or do we go have to go all back to the, sort of the Greeks and <laughs> Democritus? Yeah. Um, <laughs> the, the, the atom. I mean, I would normally start with this meeting with Szilard and Sachs with Roosevelt in 1939. They were encouraged to do by Einstein. Before we even get there, we should explain who Leo Szilard is. He's a sort of, I always feel a bit of a forgotten character. Yeah, yeah. Who was Leo Szilard and why was he important? In um, Richard Rhodes's book, The Making of the Atomic Bomb, which is the best book on this particular question, he talks a lot about Szilard, who was a crazy figure, a real Renaissance man, got involved in a lot of things. But he was an emigre scientist in the US and involved in 
chemistry and mathematics as well as nuclear physics. And he was one of the cast of characters in the 1930s who was aware of atomic science and was aware of this possibility of a bomb and was involved in this approach to Roosevelt in 1939. So where did he get his science from? I mean, I suppose we should, the beginning of the 1930s, we've got Rutherford in the Cavendish Labs. Yeah. What was going on there? What had been discovered? What was the new thinking in terms of nuclear physics? I mean, yeah, you've got Rutherford's work here in the UK and in Manchester, and also at the University of Chicago, the, probably the two initial places where atomic science is studied most intensively in this interwar period. And I think a lot of people argue that Rutherford probably was the most single influential person in terms of, if you want to draw a scientific line to the origins of the bomb, Rutherford might be a place to begin, yeah. What was it that Rutherford had seen? So where are we, 1932, 33, aren't we? I think Rutherford set up his initial labs in the teens or 20s. And became a kind of giant at at Manchester University and did a lot of the initial sort of theoretical work on atomic physics. Yeah. So sort of really understanding how the energy that is trapped or locked up in the atom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And conceiving of the notion of atomic fission. Exactly. Well, there we go. So atomic fission as this thing. And then we go on to people like Zillard, who then had this epiphany of like, well, actually this notion of the chain reaction, how you could actually fire a neutron yeah. at the atomic nucleus and create this chain reaction where other neutrons would be hit other neutrons and then this great energy that's locked up in the atom could be released somehow. This is what they were precisely what they were doing at Chicago. There's a nice story. I think it was Zillard was in London and he was crossing the street in Russell Square and he was looking at all the traffic lights changing and he had some epiphany that that's how a chain reaction might work. Yeah, yeah that's, bit- that's recounted in Richard Rhodes's book. It sounds a bit kind of one of those Eureka stories, which is probably a load of nonsense. Yeah, yeah. It's but probably, I it might be Maybe a bit apocryphal, true. but it's, yeah, it's correct. <laughs> yeah. So we've got these great physicists, people like Rutherford, finally kind of understanding the atom, a new model of, of the atom being discovered. Then you had Zillard coming along. And you talk about Chicago. So I suppose Zillard and Enrico Fermi, they set up the first nuclear pile, we would call it. In, in and the, it was actually a pile, yeah. This is the University of Chicago underneath a sports stadium, I think. Exactly right, yeah. There's, a, there's an interesting monument there. Now, I, I went to university there, and so it's, it's okay. kind of a big deal, yeah. So just explain to us what that was and why it was important to our story of how we get from there to a bomb. A lot of the nuts and bolts science was taking place at Chicago. Ex- experiments with setting off a chain reaction and obtaining energy from it were done at Chicago in in the 1930s. And again, I'm reaching the limits of my scientific knowledge here, but this is when it becomes obvious to atomic scientists, I I think for the first time, that fission would create energy, how much they didn't know, but it would create some kind of energy and potentially destructive power. So suddenly this knowledge of, of just what could happen. And then of course, there was the famous letter that Einstein wrote or drafted and, and had sent to Roosevelt via Sillard and, and Yeah, so, so this letter was written saying, my goodness, this is happening. We mustn't let this technology fall into the hands of our enemies. Yes, this is the influence on Roosevelt. Roosevelt's response, which is what you're saying is, you can't let Hitler get this thing. Yeah. It's classic international politics. The American project, the international project run in the United States was not one of ambition. It was one of defensiveness, a fear that Germany would get it. So what sort of year are we talking about here? This is 39. This is 1939. So it's before the US has even entered the war. 
That's interesting. So it wasn't like, okay, this is going to be our super weapon. We, we, well, yeah. I mean, Roosevelt agreed the Manhattan Project was initially set up after this agreement, but nothing much happened at all until after Pearl Harbor and the United States enters the war. Yeah, It was still located at a couple of different facilities. And the, the major facility at Los Alamos in New Mexico wasn't really begun until after the war had begun for the U.S. What was going on in Germany that the Americans were so worried about them developing this technology? So if they, Zillard and Fermi, they'd built their first nuclear reactor in Chicago. They'd been talking to people like Einstein. What was going on in Germany? Was there a lot of sort of nuclear physics going on? With, was- Absolutely, there was. And you know, atomic science, like most science, was an international phenomenon that was partaken of by all of the sort of major European states. Mm. Germany had lots of of nuclear physicists, including Heisenberg, and was widely suspected of having an advanced nuclear project. As it turned out, it did not. And what project it did have was pretty much ruined by the sabotage in in Norway in 1942 and 1943 and bombing. But again, no way to know that. So they had no knowledge of that. So they didn't know. In my mind, and maybe I'm wrong, a lot of those German scientists, well, people like Einstein, of course, came over in the late 1930s to America. So they were working for the Americans. Sure. A lot of the Jewish emigres were now in the US or elsewhere. But there are plenty of German scientists in Germany working on an atomic project. There was an atomic project. You had a heavy water facility in Norway for precisely this purpose that was controlled by the Nazis until it was destroyed by British efforts and also local partisan efforts. Okay, so we've got a motive. We've got some science now. We understand that this enormous power that can be released from the atom, this idea of, of fission, this chain reaction. We've got a motive. We've got war brewing in Europe. So just tell us what happens next in terms of this great project, the Manhattan Project, this top secret project to develop a bomb. Just paint us a picture, if you could, about how that started and the basic kind of parameters of that. It was run by the military, by General Groves. He appointed Oppenheimer as the director, and they invited scientists from around the U.S. and around the world, from many different countries, to relocate to Los Alamos in this southwestern desert of the United States and work full-time on transforming basic theoretical knowledge about nuclear physics into a workable bomb. So you had both creative abstract thinking kind of work, but also hands-on technical kind of work happening all at Los Alamos. And you had people like, famous people like Richard Feynman, of course, the great physicist and all these scientists that people were sort of drafted in to create this. I'm interested in how difficult is it to create a nuclear bomb from having the kind of the physics and the knowledge to actually producing the gadget that eventually was detonated? Yeah. I mean, well, it took three years of nonstop 24-7 kind of work. A lot of people thought it was impossible. A lot of people thought that it could not work. There are people who thought that when they did the initial Trinity test in July of 45, some scientists thought it might ignite the atmosphere and destroy the planet. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's one of those things where you can't know until you actually do it. Well, there is something, you know, when we think about nuclear power, it does have this strange effect on our imaginations. And I think in science fiction, even before this, people like H.G. Wells, yeah. it was about, and I think he got his knowledge, this is before the First World War, from people mm. like Rutherford, mm. that idea of the human being or the human imagination mastering science or mastering something as spectacular as the energy in an atom, just, it does fill us with horror and ideas of dystopian landscapes. So I can I kind of imagine why people were thinking that. And how top secret was it? We always talk about the Manhattan Project as being top secret, but if there was that many people, I mean, how many people were, were sort of working there? Several hundreds. I don't know the exact number. It was obviously top secret. It was unknown to the American public and most American politicians. One of the stories that I write about quite a bit 
was espionage happening during the war, the spying on the Manhattan Project and also other spying going on elsewhere in the United States, smuggling things to the USSR. So it wasn't as secret as American authorities would have hoped. U.S. wasn't used to secrecy kind of stuff in in the way that the old European states were. One of the great anecdotes comes from the Potsdam Conference in July of 1945, just after the Trinity test. And Truman walks up to Stalin saying, we've got this new weapon, watch out for us. And (laughs) Stalin says, I hope you make good use of it. And the irony of that is that Truman had learned about the bomb project about two months earlier, and Stalin had known about it since 1942. (laughs) I mean, actually, you think about that other great Cold War bit of technology, the space race. The Russians knew that the Americans were developing a satellite and managed to get Sputnik 1 up. Yeah, yeah. To sort of pip them to it. So we should just say the Manhattan Project, it wasn't just at Los Alamos. There were other facilities around America, I think in Oak Ridge and places where they were mining uranium. Yeah, in Washington State, Tennessee. So really, America itself had become this production factory, if you like, for this project for developing this bomb. How did the actual putting of it together work? How does one make a nuclear bomb? You mentioned the Trinity test. So we should just point out Trinity test was the first time anything had been detonated. And this was out in, it was Oppenheimer who called it the Trinity site. This is in, in, in the desert near Los Alamos. Yes. How hard was it? How does one go about doing it? Did it nearly not happen? Paint a picture. It's, it's hard to really say whether it nearly didn't happen because it did happen. And so it's, that's a difficult way to look at it. But many, as I said before, many scientists were very, very doubtful about whether it could work. The firing mechanism was one of the trickiest aspects of it, apparently. How to fire the atomic particles at one another inside a bomb and keep it contained until it exploded. Very, very difficult process indeed, apparently. But if you're asking sort of like, was it a miracle that this happened? Was it really unexpected? I would say probably no. I think that the science was pretty solid. And I think the fact that other nations have been able to do this relatively quickly indicates that the science isn't this exotic, crazy, one in a million luck thing that one might think. It's interesting you mentioned espionage. Here you've got this top secret project in remote places in the the US. Did the Russians have spies? Did they get their technology for building their weapons from what was going on in America? Yeah, there's, I mean, there's, Obviously, they had their own atomic scientists without whom they would not have been able to build a bomb in 1949. Two things about the spies. One is that they did deliver the Russians important scientific knowledge, blueprints, but also they communicated, they gave the Russians the knowledge that this thing is possible, that it's worth devoting resources to it at a time when the Soviet Union was in desperate situation. Hmm. Obviously, after Hiroshima and Nagasaki, they would have known this anyways, but the project is nascent during the war because The spies are telling the Soviet Union that this is possible. And the spies are also important because they are communicating to Stalin about a project that the official governments in in Washington and London are not talking about at all. Hmm. And so this helps in some ways to intensify hostilities between the U.S. and the Soviet Union, even when they're still allies during the Second World War. We'll be back after this short break. 
absolutely yeah. incredible. Or anime. Yeah. And under this sure. mask is another mask. <laughs> <laughs> you can discover your new favorites right here on The Anime Effect. Listen every Friday, wherever you get your podcast, and watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or on the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany, and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Let's go from the first test of the bomb and the Trinity side, and it was a success. What was the sort of timeline from that? Okay, we've now built a bomb. It works. Of course, you've got the, the famous Oppenheimer, I am death, I am a destroyer of worlds. This kind of Suddenly, you have this moment in human history where we have mastered this phenomenal energy. And then we get Hiroshima and Nagasaki. What was the sort of time frame between that? This is all happening quite quickly. You've got the Trinity yeah. test in mid-July. July 45. Yep. The Potsdam Conference happening simultaneously. Truman had just remind, actually, us, remind us what the Potsdam Conference was. Sorry, the, the Potsdam Conference was the first conference among the major allied leaders after the defeat of Nazi Germany. So you have Stalin, Truman, and then Churchill, who was replaced by Clement Attlee in the middle of it, because there was an election here in the UK, which Churchill amazingly lost. And Truman had had the conference postponed for a couple of weeks so that by the time he got there, he would know about the Trinity test, which indicates that he, he was interested in using this as a diplomatic tool of one kind or another. Well, that's because people always think, oh, well, the bomb is, the, you know, that's what ended the war. But the, the war had kind of pretty much ended. We still had the war in the Pacific. Yeah. But the war in the, in, against Germany, had, that had ended. So Oh, yeah. Bomb, the, I mean, that was I, over in May. So yeah. the atomic bomb had no bearing on, on the European war, apart from the prospect of it. So at that point, though, the Americans must have known they, that the war was going to be won by America. So why drop this new weapon? You know, even though it had, we'd built it and it spent three years building it at enormous cost, presumably, why bother then dropping it on Japan? What was the point? <laughs> How many hours do you have? <laughs> well, I, I mean, bullet point it for us. Okay, so this is the thing that I write about a lot. So I, I, okay. I, it's, it's an enormously contentious topic. Okay. Or you can tell us what people generally think and actually what you actually think. Okay, because so I think there's a lot of nonsense talked about it. I'll, I'll give you the, the sort of general historical narrative. Yeah. The historical narrative is that the United States drops the two bombs because it's a way to end the war with Japan as quickly as possible and to avoid American casualties. Also, by the way, although this was not said at the time, the dropping of the atomic bomb probably meant, not probably, certainly meant fewer Japanese casualties than would have happened had there been a full-on invasion of the the Japanese islands. And so this is the sort of mainstream narrative. You've got a revisionist narrative that argues that the United States dropped the bomb 
primarily in order to intimidate the USSR and or to keep them from invading Manchuria on the way to Japan, which they had agreed to do at the Potsdam Conference. And so that it wasn't about saving American lives at all, but it was rather a power play in the, in the upcoming Cold War. My argument is that the first bombing of Hiroshima makes sense in terms of the traditional narrative, because Truman was not going to avoid using this bomb and send tens of thousands of Americans to their death if he could avoid it, just for political reasons, if no other. For me, the interesting question is why the United States dropped the second bomb so quickly. Mm. And I think the explanation for that moves more towards this revisionist argument that the United States not, not only wanted to end the war, but it wanted to end the war as quickly as possible before the Soviets could advance into Manchuria and before they could have a role in, in occupying Japan. Oh, that's interesting. So the Americans had a, an eye on what was going on in, with the Soviets. Absolutely. Yeah. There's no question about and presumably, that. I mean, just the amount of money that had been spent on the Manhattan Project and developing this thing, do you think there was a kind of a sense of, Christ, we've made this bloody thing now, we've spent a fortune on it, we may as well use it, otherwise what's the point? There's a lot of arguments. The debate about Hiroshima and Nagasaki is a historical topic that just keeps on giving. It's mm-hmm. debated as intensively now as it was 60 years ago. Yeah. Because there's so many aspects that you have, the, you have race, you have this technological determinism, you have Cold War politics, all sorts of argumentation comes into play here. I mean, I think that if Japan had surrendered, as they could easily have done after Potsdam, then the U.S. would not have used it, right? I mean, even if maybe the war hadn't quite come to an end. The problem was is is that you had this policy of unconditional surrender, and the Japanese were uh, up for that. And so either you backed down on unconditional surrender, which, by the way, the U.S. eventually did do, or you choose the bomb over a, a horrible bullet land invasion. So the dropping of the two bombs became this moment in 20th century history. But then the sort of history of nuclear weapons then takes us into the Cold War as well. And suddenly the entire Cold War seems to be about numbers of nuclear weapons. And obviously the weapons themselves change as well. We, I mean, the, I'm thinking about Russian weapons and the, the development of the hydrogen bomb, which used fission rather than fusion, and everything just kind of escalated. And sort of nuclear weapons, I suppose, were at the heart of that balance of the Cold War. Is that fair? That's certainly what I would argue. Nuclear weapons become not only the centerpiece of the sort of military conflict between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. They also, in my opinion, explain why the Cold War never became a hot war. And they also, in my opinion, explain why the Soviet Union decided to quit peacefully, which is unprecedented in the history of great power relations. All of these things, in my opinion, can be explained entirely by this problem of nuclear war and the possibility of human extermination. I'm just trying to imagine what the mid-20th century would have looked like without nuclear weapons. <laughs> I'm, I'm quite sure there would have been a World War Three. Yeah, well, that's it. It's funny, you know, for myself sort of growing up in the UK in the 1970s and 1980s, which I suppose was the end of the Cold War, but still that fear of nuclear weapons was really big. And I, I mean, I remember as a kid, me and my cousin Mark, we'd sort of dug a bomb shelter yeah, in our yeah. garden. 1983, this year where the sort of the possibility of nuclear war reemerged after 20 years. Mm. I was a um, first year student at uni. And the possibility of there being a nuclear war that happened then was what made my career. I mean, that's, that's what led me to do what I do. It just holds a particular fear for us still, a particular fascination. And when we look at countries like North Korea and Iran, it kind of rekindles those sort of Cold War fears that we had for so long. Just Let's just sort of talk about the future of nuclear weapons. Like, What place do they have now? If they were this sort of balance during the post-war years up to the end of the 1980s. What is the future of nuclear weapons now, do you think? Like, are they going to have a kind of role of keeping the peace or is it going to go rogue? Presently, the role that nuclear weapons have, in my opinion, is fundamental in explaining China. 
In what way? Because China has recognized that if it's going to compete with the United States and become a peer competitor like the Soviet Union tried to do during the Cold War, Mm. it's foolish for them to try to match American military power because they have a basic nuclear arsenal, so they'll never be attacked. And so they can concentrate rather on economic expansion and development, which is precisely what China has been doing for the last 50 years. So I think you can explain a lot of what's going on today with respect to the relationship between U.S. and China by looking at the importance of of nuclear deterrence. I think China has played a hand very well, actually. Then on the other hand, as you mentioned, you've got the possibility of proliferation. I personally think that the possibility of proliferation in Iran has been absolutely overhyped and has become a political tool more than anything else. Yeah. Well, I suppose my question is, how hard is it to build a nuclear weapon? I mean, there's lots of unknowns. We don't know whether Iran has a nuclear weapon. We're pretty sure North Korea has nuclear weapons, presumably from ex-Soviet scientists defecting to places like North Korea. How how would we know? And how hard is it to do things like enrich uranium and strap it onto an ICBM? It's not hard at all if you've got decent science and the right people and access to the necessary materials. It's well known among scientists how to do it. The difficulty in doing it is simply withstanding the pressure that comes comes at you from non-proliferation forces and nations like the United States. Mm. That's the much more difficult problem. Has the sort of science and the technology changed? I mean, we think about the two bombs that were dropped in Japan. Those are the you know the, the the first types of nuclear bombs. What's changed now? I mean, if in terms of technology, why the, how are they different now, it's and how the, are they going to sort of change in the future? It's really interesting because obviously, when thermonuclear weapons were developed in the 1950s and 60s, the difference was simply in terms of destructive mm. firepower. They were as much as a thousand times more powerful than the fission bombs that were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. What's happening now, interestingly enough, especially in the U.S., is the development of very small nuclear weapons which can be used, hypothetically at least, much like conventional weapons are used. Right. And I personally find this very worrisome because what that does is blur the line between conventional weapons and nuclear weapons. Yeah. And this is a debate that's going on right now in Washington especially about whether the United States should try to build a nuclear arsenal that can win a nuclear war versus one that would simply deter one from happening. And the Biden administration is about right now to publish what it calls this nuclear posture review, and we will learn very soon about whether the Biden administration is going to pursue this notion of war-winning capability or whether it's going to step back and have a policy more like China's has been. The fear of all this kind of stuff is it's kind of enough to spark things off, I think. I mean, I remember the fall of the Soviet Union and the idea that nuclear material could get in the hands of terrorist organizations. And actually, you don't need to build a nuclear bomb anymore. You can just make a dirty bomb. And just people's fear of nuclear energy and that kind of thing is enough to destable economies and civilizations and absolutely the, yeah yeah you could just send a rudimentary explosive device with uranium in it yeah. in a shipping container and job done but from a technical point of view when i think of things like the soviet union i think the star bomber the giant hydrogen bombs are those sorts of things going to continue being built or as you say do you think everything is going to, going to get smaller and more yeah the, the star bomber was a spectacle it wasn't necessary for any kind of military purpose we should just explain what it is it was an enormous soviet I think its destructive capability was 50 megatons. Yeah. So that's, what, about 2,000 times as explosive as the bombs that destroyed Hiroshima and Nagasaki. I think my numbers are right. They could be wrong, but you get the idea. Yeah. In terms of the sort of future of geopolitics now and nuclear weapons, it's going to be a complete sea change from what it was in the Cold War, you think? Yeah. I mean, the number one question really will be whether the United States decides to try to pursue war-winning capabilities. If it does do that, then China probably will eventually do so as well. And we're looking at a, something comparable to the Cold War. 
I personally think that the United States would be making a grave mistake if it did that. But there are plenty of people whose ideas I respect who think this is either going to happen or inevitable, actually. And if you accept their argument, what you're saying is essentially sooner or later, there will be a nuclear war. Can you imagine a situation where where that could happen, where it could be used again? I mean, I think about some North Korea. Well, look at the Ukraine now. You could have a conflict in the Ukraine. You could have the West and Russia choosing not to back down over it. Someone does something crazy and you have Kiev is bombed. There is a re- retaliation and, and someone in Russia says, we have to consider using this arsenal. Or someone gets the order wrong or a computer chip fails. I mean, if you look at the history of the Cuban Missile Crisis, neither side wanted to have a nuclear war at all and was never close to deliberately trying to initiate it. But nevertheless, they came very close because that's what happens in these kinds of confrontations. It's worth thinking about nuclear weapons and how they're shaping this, right? Because Mm. if you think back to Crimea, Russia took Crimea back in 2014, and no one even mentioned the idea of stopping it militarily. Mm. There's one reason for that and one reason only is because of nuclear weapons. And Biden has already said, we're not defending the Ukraine. You know, partly that's to do with the fact that the United States has had enough war in the last 20 years, but also because of those kinds of risks. So it's not as though the US or Russia or NATO would come into a crisis like the Ukraine thinking we're going to prepare to use nuclear weapons. It's it's that because crises can escalate out of hand with no one wanting that to happen. And eventually something snaps. Yeah. Man, it's complicated. It's funny, kind of looking back to during the Second World War and even the Cold War, things seemed a lot simpler then. Even something like an arms race was sort of comprehensible. But now everything just seems so wildly complicated and messy. Yeah, it is far less orderly in in some respect. Exactly. And frustratingly, we can't uninvent the nuclear bomb. There are those who disagree with you about that, by the way. Really? Yeah. Well, how would one uninvent it? I don't think their argument's strong at all. It's quite a difficult, the box is open, Pandora's box is open. It is. I mean, there are people who say that you could essentially permit over decades knowledge about how to build a bomb to rust away. As states don't invest in the technologies, they don't invest in the facilities, the scientists who know how to do it die off. This is actually a pretty well-known academic argument. Mm -hmm. And all the arguments about how to avoid a nuclear war, this is one of them, that you sort of have this fading away of of nuclear weapons. It's quite hard, though, with the internet. (laughs) Well, I mean, to me, it's to sort of rust away completely where all knowledge could sort of dissipate. To me, the the problem with with it is not so much that, is that some nations or groups might say, hey, you you can let your weapons rust, but we're going to still build our, have a few here in the basement. Exactly. And once you know that someone's doing that, other people aren't going to do it, and the whole process never begins. Just from a, an invention point of view, from a sort of technology point of view, you know, we mentioned a lot of names. Who do you think is the person, I guess, most responsible or could be credited for developing the first atomic bomb? I would say not a scientist. I would say Roosevelt. Interesting. That's, but that's because I'm a political historian more than a historian yeah. of science. But, <laughs> yeah. but, well, without him, the Manhattan Project would have happened. There would have been no reason to... No, and uh, many other American presidents in 1939 <clears throat> would have made very different decisions, yeah. hypothetically. I think that Roosevelt is more important than anyone else. It's interesting. I, mean, I suppose that other great Cold War story of beating the Russians to get to the moon. And again, we wouldn't have got to the moon without sort of the politics involved. But actually, Kennedy wanted to do it with the Russians, that whole we choose to go to the moon thing. Yes. A year later, he was like, no, 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 let's do it with the Russians. It'll be a lot cheaper and it'll be a lot more sensible and we can do it as a joint project. Yeah, and then Kennedy, Kennedy peace, died and then... He became a peacenik after yeah. the missile crisis. Yeah. Listen, Campbell, thank you so much for chatting. Really interesting to get your take on things. Thank you for taking the time to map out that story and plug it. What's your latest book? The book that speaks to this... There's a couple of books I've written that speak mm. to this most obviously. 
One is a book I wrote with a, my co-author, Sergei Redchenko, about 13 years ago called The Atomic Bomb and the Origins of the Cold War. And then I've also written a, a book about American Cold War foreign policy that focuses on nuclear weapons quite a bit uh, called America's Cold War, which I co-wrote with Frederick Logoval. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are two books that your listeners might want to buy on Amazon and Go buy those books. It is one of those great stories, one of those great historical stories that is filled with amazing science, technology, and terrible things. Hey, listen, thank you so much for chatting. It's been a great pleasure. And I hope our listeners will, if they're interested in finding out a little bit more about the history and technology and science and politics of this, they will go and read your books. I hope so too. Right, that's all for today. Thank you very much for listening. Now, if you've got an invention you want to know the story behind, let me know. You can find me on Twitter and we've got all kinds of episodes coming up on things like spacesuits and condoms and tanks and ear trumpets and all sorts of things. And if any of that sounds up your street, just subscribe. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Subscribe or follow wherever you are listening now. And I'll be back every Wednesday and Sunday with brand new episodes. While I still have you, very briefly, if you fancy getting all of the History Hit podcast archive and new episodes ad-free, along with hundreds of history documentaries to watch, download our app across Apple App Store, Google Play, and smart TV platforms. Follow the link in the show notes, or go to historyhit.com slash subscribe. There is thousands of hours of history on there, including a documentary on science in the Middle Ages with Seb Folk, and also one with me talking about the secret history of the space race. As a patented listener, you get a special gift if you use the code Patented at the checkout, you get 50% off your first three months. That's patented for 50% off your first three months. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free podcast episodes within the Apple app.